Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia. Right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are, Positively Different Radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and... Angela. Angela, how are you this morning? I am excellent. You are, you are excellent this I morning. Am. Why are you excellent this morning? Because I'm so filled with love. <laughs> you know... Oh, okay. This sounds interesting. <laughs> do tell. Do tell. Well, you know, it's kind of pathetic. We walk around in life sometimes not appreciating how many people really love us. And sometimes it takes a birthday... Um, to be reminded that so many people value you. And I just think we need to walk around with a little bit more understanding. Of, like, there's a lot of people out there who do care about us. And, I have, yeah. I have never seen anybody <laughs> embrace a birthday like <laughs> you have embraced your. 31st birthday, Angela. This is day three now. Well, no, I don't mean... To, I, I know, I thought about that this morning. I wasn't... I didn't mean... Okay, you're right. I don't mean to keep talking about myself. <laughs> no, I actually no, no, this is thought awesome. about how much this I was like talking best. about myself, and I really feel embarrassed because I don't usually... In fact, I didn't even like tell a lot of people it was my no, birthday. No, but I think this is super positive because uh, some people in your position would be kind of, you know, because when you said you were having a birthday, I didn't even ask how old you were because that's kind of impolite. Mm. And some people in your position kind of pretend like they never had a birthday. Yeah. I know people who have pretended like they have never had a birthday or have actually um, knocked, you know, 10 years off their age when mm. they're socializing with other people or even been in a long term with re- relationship with somebody and never told them their age because they are so insecure about it. And you've just gone out there, full-blown, <laughs> just embraced it. Yeah, I'm 31. Life is good. God has blessed me. And I think it's awesome. Well, like I guess I look I at birthdays like a New Year's resolution. Like, how am I going to live this life more fully for God? And I just feel like, you know, I'm just going to embrace all the gifts he's given me because I'm alive and I have people to love. This uh, exercise of writing down positive things was obviously a really, really good idea. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm a farmer girl. And I have never actually owned these little animals. Um, I personally wanted to own a sheep. A like baby a lamb. I Once. definitely wanted to have sheep. I still want sheep. But what my... If you get a lamb and raise it... Sorry, I butted in. Yes, but it's you okay. Get, if Continue you get a lamb on. and raise it on a bottle from birth, mm. I've done that. And they are the sweetest pets you can ever have. They're just amazing. You know, uh, my aunt, my grandma gave my aunt uh, a baby lamb. And um, she was only like four or something. And she told me a story about how they play out in the yard. And the goat... Or the sheep, sorry. I just revealed what I'm talking about. The sheep um, actually got aggressive and they had to, because um, he thought he was playing with her and she was only four and it actually yeah, just, didn't it, work anymore for that too relationship. Small, too small for him. Yep. yep. Yeah. I, I, had, uh, I had mine when I was maybe in year six in school, I think. Yeah. Year five or six. And so I was big enough to handle the lamb when the lamb decided to, decide to play because lambs play by butting. Yes, and that's what... Yeah. And they will send a four-year-old absolutely <laughs> flying. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I kind of gave it away. I'm talking about goats today. So what is your feeling about goats? Love goats. Had more goats than I had sheep. Okay. And I raised more goats from... I don't remember how many... I only ever raised one lamb, but I raised a bunch of goats when I was a kid because our goats would have kids. Mm-hmm. And us kids would go down and get those kids <laughs> and take them, off their, take them off their mother and put them in a little pen by themselves and uh, then milk the mother and hand raise the kids just 
because it was fun. Mm. And, you know, the first week you'd sort of keep them in a cardboard box and they'd have to come inside and you have to get up in the middle of the night and feed them, you know, three times a night. It was good, it was good for us kids to learn some, uh, I guess, uh, responsibility in dealing with pets and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, they'd grow up and we'd put them out in the paddock and they'd be goats in the paddock. But We had to do that with baby cows a couple of times because the mothers would abandon them, so we would take care of the baby calves. Yeah. I had Orphan Annie. I love bottle feeding her. But anyways, before we run out of time, the main point of my story is the fact that did you know that they are doing studies in Israel to find out that goats are an ecologically friendly way to reduce the risk of extensive fires. That's cool. Wait, are goats considered an invasive species they in Australia? They are invasive species. <laughs> I've kind of got, I'm, I'm kind of sitting here with two minds on this okay, one Okay, well, let me teach you a little bit before you speak, okay? So here we go. Um, so go- goats contribute to fire prevention by eating the excessive vegetation in areas where plant growth is dense and scrubby, making it more difficult for fires to spread. So cows and sheep, they thin out vegetation, but goats... Um, feed on like all sorts of different things and sheep and goats just like grass goats are even willing to stand on their back two legs to reach up to the top of the trees and um, get the low hanging dense um, foliage on the bottom of the trees right so if a fire starts it climbs up to the top of the tree if there's low hanging branches and that's when it gets so dangerous because then it just hops from the top of a tree to another top of a tree but if you can get that, if you can thin out the little branches on the bottom of the tree, then it's less likely for the fires to grow so big. And so they're saying that they want to use goats um, to slow down big fires in Israel. Interestingly enough, um, there was a huge widespread goat grazing back in Israel, but there was a law to protect the plants um, called the Black Black Goat Law, um, which was named after a common breed among the Bedouins in Israel back in 1950, and it's been um, significantly enforced since 1978. So it's restricting goats from grazing um, because of p- protecting the plants, right? And so in the mountains, they went from a 15,000 goat population down to 2,000, okay? Which you're like, yes, protecting the species, um, of native species, but the problem is um, these fires, right? They want to slow down this problem of fires. And so uh, do you think that's a good idea or a bad idea? Okay, so I'm going to... Um, all right, let me go for it. Goats in, in Palestine are an indigenous species. Yep. And so they belong there. Goats in Australia are an invasive species. And you make a very good point. We used to, in Tasmania you know, have blackberries, which are also an invasive species. And so we'd attack one invasive species with another. So we'd get, you know, a gully that had been completely filled with blackberries and you just fence it off and put goats in there. And they would eat, they would relish those, they would rather eat blackberries than grass. Uh, And they would eat them down until they actually killed them. And so what you are saying is absolutely correct. Goats will eat the shirt off your back. They will eat just about anything that comes past. And so I can see that they'll be very effective in reducing big fires. Here in Australia, the problem that we have is uh, the destruction of native vegetation that is endangered Mm. and uh, the way that goats also spread 
uh, disease and other invasive species, you know, native vegetation. and I mean, non-native vegetation. So, so basically forth. this might work so, in Israel, but not in Australia. I was really excited. I was like, oh, we could do goats in Australia. But I did wonder if it would be more negative than positive. I, it's a really interesting concept. I've never thought about it from this perspective before. And yeah, I'm just sort of, mm, I'm wondering about it. But anyway... Um, we're going to move on with our show. This is uh, Gavin Chatalia with Lead Me, Guide Me. You're listening to. Won't you lead me? I'm tired and I need Lord, just open my eyes That I may see Lead me, oh Lord Won't you lead me? Lead me, guide me Along the way Lord, just open my eyes that I may see. Lead me, oh Lord, won't you lead me? I am lost if you take your hand from me. I am blind without. Thy light to see, Lord, just always let me thy servant be. Lead me, oh Lord, won't you lead me? Lead me, guide me along the way. For if you lead me, I cannot stray. Lord, just open my eyes that I may see. Lead me, oh Lord, won't you lead me? Lead me, oh Lord, won't you lead me? And you are just listening to Lead Me, Guide Me. All right. So, Lyle, what is the next clue? Okay. Next clue for the quiz That you have too much joy in. What am I? No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under this. I mean, I know the song, but something tells me, like, you're definitely trying to (laughs) trick me. So, um... Yeah, okay. All right. <clears throat> um, let's see if she can write down the correct answer this time. It really doesn't make sense with the first one, though. We have had some people uh, texting in for uh, bragging rights, which has been good. But uh, <laughs> if you know the answer, one eight hundred three two four eight four three. 324 843 That is not the correct answer. <laughs> 
One eight hundred. I told you the next clue would melt your brain. Yeah, that's like the children's song. You know, that's what I was. One eight hundred three two four eight four three or one eight hundred Faith FM. Um, or zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. So let me read this one again, and it says, "No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under this." So what am I? Okay, if you're going to call up with the answer and try and get the double prizes before Angela, here's a hint: don't go with the obvious. Clearly, Do not go with the obvious. There is more than one account of this passage in the Bible. Yeah, the children's song failed me. My teaching background did not come in. <laughs> oh, I'm having so much fun this morning, I Angela. Know. You have no oh, idea. I can tell. I'm such a cruel person, aren't I? I, should, <laughs> I, I, feel, I, I feel slightly guilty at the moment. Uh, well, nah, you know, really. it's okay because I do too because it's like, oh no, quick, I have to get it before they get it. But before, I'm always like, please, listeners, get it. So, you know, I'm seeing my true heart here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Actually, I'm not guilty at all. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so traveling, uh, looking, looking at news, we're going to start right here in Newcastle, which is local to us with The Breakfast Show. We, of course, we broadcast out of Newcastle. And uh, New, New South Wales Member of Parliament Mark Latham has been here in Newcastle chairing a committee overseeing the trial of relaxing alcohol lockout laws in this area. Now, Mark Latham has been championing, championing a, uh, a bill through New South Wales for religious liberty, which I strongly support. This one I strongly do not support. So in 2008, we had lockout laws that came into the Newcastle area that focused on areas of uh, you know, violence and trouble and hotspots as a result of people you know, getting drunk. Pretty much nothing good happens after you know, midnight on a Saturday night in a bar full of drunk people. It's just not a great idea. They brought in lockout laws down in Sydney. It worked wonders. The level of violence sort of just vanished overnight. And so they brought it up here to Newcastle. And so now Mark Latham's come up here to chair this particular committee to uh, look at um, getting rid of these lockout laws. Uh, Of course, when he did so, his committee had no doctors in it, no nurses, no paramedics, um, no representative from the police union. Um, And it was supported by the Lord Mayor, that's uh, Nuatali Nelms, and the local MP, Tim uh, Crackenthorpe, but both of these are backing um, looser lockout laws and they're proposing a six-month trial. And, of course, there was a whole bunch of people who were on it, uh, including Liquor and Gaming New South Wales, uh, Independent Liquor and Gaming Authority, uh, the Newcastle Council, local city council, bar owners and tourism industry group, etc. So when you put a committee together like that, that's what you call a stacked committee. That's a committee <laughs> where you are not putting anyone on the committee except for people that you know are going to support getting rid of these lockout laws. It's not a very balanced mindset. That's not for sure. a very balanced mindset at all. This is a committee with a predetermined outcome, and Mark Latham needs to wake up, and he needs to recognise that he needs to do something about this to bring some more balance to the committee, and of course, 
um, reducing those lockout laws is something that I would, you know, we just need to close our pubs altogether. We've got COVID floating around the place. Why do we need to have pubs open? You know, pubs are the worst possible idea during a COVID crisis. Yeah, it's very illogical to have them open. Yeah, very we've got illogical. one. We've got one pub in Sydney, just one pub, and there's been 28 COVID cases come from it in the last couple of days. 28 from one pub. So you got people late at night. We all know how we get late at night. We, we, our inhibitions go down. We start to become forgetful. We're not as careful about stuff late at night. Then you throw alcohol into the mix. And then you place that in an environment where people are naturally close together, whether they have gathered for the purpose of socializing and you're expecting them to stay one and a half meters apart at all times. Uh, yeah, that's some very high, unreasonable expectations. <laughs> and this is an environment where people have gone there for the purpose of socially connecting. Yes. It's not going to happen. It's not reality in anyone's world that is not reality we've seen it happen in melbourne we've now seen it happen in sydney um and so yeah in in this sydney one 28 covid cases and counting from just one pub uh and so just yesterday we had uh, 13 new cases in new south wales two of them were were from quarantine one of them was a contact of a quarantine person and 10 were from that pub you know, I've seen several news stories where they are quick to blame like a religious getting together that they say that's where it started in this country or that's where it started in this city. I would be interested in seeing a study of comparing how it grew in religious activities versus pubs. That's an interesting, that's an interesting question because I've actually got some information on that. If I, It looks like I'll get time to get to it. Okay, so I'm going to come to that one in just a moment. Uh, okay, where are we? So there's one uh, that are 13 uh, new cases. Um, Ten of them were from the one pub. There's another seven cases that are linked to that. Um, one, a further case that is under investigation. And out of the people who have tested positive at that pub, one of them worked at an aged care facility. One of them worked at Kmart. One of them went from the pub and went and visited Star City Casino. One of them went to a local gym. One of them went to a from there to a Canterbury Leagues club. One of them went from there to the Norellan Town Centre, shopping centre. And so you start to work through, you know, one pub and how far it can spread from one pub. Pubs have been demonstrated worldwide to be the worst places for the spread of COVID-19. Okay, I did have another page here somewhere. Wouldn't casinos also be just as bad because everyone's touching all those little plane chips or the knobs? Like, how would you sanitize constantly everything that you can touch, each individual card? I mean, there's so many things to touch at a casino. And where do you have a casino where they are not open late at night Mm. and not serving alcohol? They specifically open late at night and serve alcohol at casinos so that they can lower people's inhibitions so that they can make money. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about at a casino. Uh, okay, so Abaka Huli, who's a uh, Richmond player, um, AFL player, has called for Muslims to get tested and to practice social distancing, di- distancing and this is as a result of the Al-Taqwa uh, College in Victoria uh, contributing to one of the largest eight outbreaks down there. Mm. And so, yeah, religious gatherings, we need to be careful as well. Uh, this is an evidence of it, evidence of it right there, and it's good to uh, see you know a, a star football player stand up and say you know you guys need to get your act together. Um, in fact, he stated that please, he says please, I urge you for the sake of Allah, 
Go get tested if you're showing any form of symptoms. If you're not showing any symptoms, please do your bit. And so that was you know, a, a great call from a, a star football player calling out to his religious community to actually do something about it because uh, some religious institutions are doing really well and some are not. And when I go to church, I'm thinking, you know, this seems to be over the top. But the reality is that I think as religious institutions, we need to be over the top because we will create ourselves, turn ourselves into a media target if we are not. The media is out there and they are just waiting to target, you know, the next religious institution they can to point the finger and say, ah, it's not pubs, it's churches and mosques and synagogues and so forth that are the problem uh, or temples, whatever it might be that are the problem. We need to not be putting that target on our back, let that target stay exactly where it belongs with the pubs. Let's close these pubs down. We don't need to have them. Um, They are creating a problem. They, uh, particularly during a crisis like this, um, it's the last thing in the world that we want to be having at this particular point in time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We have David Haupt joining us to talk about mental health this morning. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle, and good morning to your listeners again. David, I understand we're talking about PTSD today and how some people are crippled by PTSD and some people are able to... Um, to move past it, to find healing from it, to overcome it. And we want to explore the differences between these two kinds of people. It's one of those, you know, I I was just, and I'll just throw this out there. I was listening to, you know, a, a history podcast yesterday and they were talking about, you know, some of the, uh, Hollywood characters, major Hollywood characters from back in the day. And you've got people like, say, for instance, Lee Marvin, who was an actor in The Dirty Dozen, but who was a World War II veteran who was wounded in combat. And it's like, okay, how does somebody like that come back from an experience like that and then produce, you know, a movie, you know, that uh, depicts, you know, warfare and bloodshed and violence? Um, how, how are they able to function like that? And it went on to talk about, like, you know, when they, when they actually interviewed him and asked him this question, like, oh, he says, you know, I'm not the hero. And it goes on to talk about, you know, another guy who was standing on the beaches of Iwo Jima and he had to stand fully upright and signal to the incoming landing craft by waving flags. I mean, you can't really put a bigger target on yourself than that. And he's like, I'm not the hero. This guy's the hero. And then he named this guy who was a popular comedian in America at the time. And it's just like, okay, these guys went through horrific stuff, were able to overcome it and move on. What makes the difference here? Why are some people more resilient than others? You, you're raising questions uh, in relation to resilience here, Lyle, uh, and it's very interesting that people uh, often, when they go through major traumatic events in their life, some would be bogged down for the rest of their life and continue to drink antidepressants and uh, go into a life of addictions, while others thrive, like the ones that you've just, uh, you know, shared the examples of. And and the question is raised in uh, the literature, what makes a difference? It's very interesting that um, people, highly resilient people, often chooses uh, a whole range of methods of uh, survival. And one of those are, are comedy. 
are in reality laughter. Uh, it's interesting that when I go to see uh, my dentist, uh, the first book that I reach for in his waiting room is um, Reader's Digest. And the first page that I turn to is um, uh, laughter, best medicine. Uh, and and it's, it's very interesting that when you study those topics, that a whole, having a whole arsenal of survival methods, one is diverting your focus onto someone else, the other is to be able to continue to talk. But it is very interesting that Dr. Amart um, done some research on this and they found that the number one key to overcoming tragedy is religious belief among survivors. And this is something that we've also seen in some very high-profile cases of, you know, particularly people from the Second World War, because we're starting to get to the point where, you know, that is becoming history that people are intensely interested in. And we're seeing some mm. of these major case studies come out of people who were terribly, terribly damaged by that conflict, you know, going through some of the most horrific st- circumstances and yet overcoming it by coming to Jesus Christ. So the, the real option that people have, says uh, Professor Grant, is that people with unresolved trauma will either live a life of uh, addictions or a life of mental disorder. And the only other option for them is to turn to spirituality because religious belief in survivors is the single most powerful force to explain the tragedy and in, in explaining survival. Sure. I know. I, yeah, I want to unpack that a little bit, a little bit more, if we could, um, as far as you know, how spirituality helps us to understand and to explain, um, you know, the, the the horrific things that we see in our world. So, in other words, for a Christian looking at the most horrific tragedy in their life, they realise that there is something out there, they have survived for a reason, for a purpose. They have most probably lost an experience, and especially in post-traumatic stress disorder, they have either perceived or, or seen someone horrifically die in front of them, or they themselves have gone through the torture or the, the major atrocities that happened. But in it, they find meaning and purpose for their life. In other words, they actually change the trajectory of their life, not just to live for themselves in the future anymore, but now to live for other people at a higher order. Um, we, Linda and Charlie Bloom in psychology today refers to the topic of reframing in the context of trauma as the, the transformative power of suffering. So we so often talk about post-traumatic stress disorder as a disorder that holds people back from being able to move forward in their life, holds them in the pain of the past. But then you see the same people or the similar people with exactly the same exposure to that trauma move on and they actually put a new frame around that horrible experience, a frame that actually changes the whole intensity and meaning of the event and they're able to to use that experience to the betterment and for the healing of other people. 
Why is it, do you think, and you know, this may be a question that we just, you know, we just simply do not have the answer for, but when people go through a horrific event, and I've sort of started this little segment by talking about warfare, um, so just maybe continuing on that same vein, you have you know, a group of young men that go off to war and half of them come back. They all, they're all going to come back with you know, some level of PTSD. Half of them are able to reframe that uh, within a spiritual context and actually draw closer to God as a result of the horrific experiences that they've seen. You've got the other half that turn around and say, if this kind of horror exists then I don't believe in God. God can't exist at all. Why, why do people go to such polar extremes um, during a time of crisis like this? May I, may I, before we go any further, may I bring it closer to home? In the yes. DSM-4, which is the psychiatric Bible, the, uh, the handbook that psychiatrists use to diagnose these mental disorders, in the fourth version, uh, there was no reference to any form of PTSD in relation to uh, sexual abuse. In the DSM-5, that is recognized as being a tra- traumatic event and um, it can lead to PTSD. We've seen the symptoms uh, as we've worked with people while the DSM-4 was out, but the DSM-4 just didn't give us that. So the question is much closer. Even women that have uh, gone through a miscarriage will have very similar uh, experiences as well. So your question then, why the difference between the two? Uh, I, I believe it is a range of, of uh, elements uh, that these individuals had most probably had positive people in their lives that actually challenged their thinking. I'm referring here to people that change the trajectory and um, become positive people, have people that helped them and supported them to be able to recognize that the atrocities that they were caught up in, uh, in reality, didn't speak into them. It actually speaks about the unfairness of the world in which we live and therefore helped them and guided them towards uh, a, a placing of a new frame around the picture. I love when uh, I'm under major stress just to relax by taking fo- uh, photographs. And if I've got a beautiful photograph and I want to blow it up and hang it in my living room, it depends on what kind of frame I'm going to put around that picture. And that frame will determine whether the person that visits me, whether their eyes would be drawn to that picture or whether it will detract from the beauty of that picture. It is no different to the events that we experience in our life. It is our choice. And those people around us that can support us to help us to place the right frame, in other words, the right meaning around it. I believe that the devil would like to destroy each and every one of us. But God is, while God is not the author of our pain, he wants us to put a new frame around it that actually will glorify him. In the midst of our greatest pain, we can glorify God and in actual fact become instrumental in helping other people to survive as well. And this is a consistent story that I've seen with PTSD survivors, overcomers, people who have received healing from PTSD, is that they are all consistently people who have focused their energy on helping other people. 
uh, mm. rather than focusing their attention on themselves. Is this is this this seems to be what uh, what what you're seeing coming through in the research as well? Research that has come out and new research on the same topic has been done every every few years about the the major impact of looking away from yourself and trying to help others. And even in the midst of your own crisis, those people that have looked away from themselves and their own needs and looked at helping other people received a far greater mental health uh, resilience in return as well as physical health. There's a text that I'd like to, to share this morning with your listeners. Actually, two texts, if I may. The first one is Ephesians 2 verse 10. Just after Paul had described the gospel as, as a free gift, he then says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word there that is uh, translated as created in the Greek actually says that we have been crafted in Christ Jesus for good works. So in other words, our best crafting takes place at the time of crisis in our life. And, and it can shape us, and it's our choice in which direction we will allow it to be shaped either to further destruction or, in actual fact, to become a blessing to other people. Does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense. And so when we face crises, and the reality is that we're all going to face a crisis at some particular point in our life that would qualify for you know, a level of PTSD. Uh, yeah. that's, that's just the world in which we live. And so if we can take that to God, if we can take it to Jesus... And if we can reframe it and we can look at it in the context of a world of sin and we can recognize that we have a savior, we can recognize that he's called us to make the world a better place. If we can recognize that, um, that you know, Jesus came to serve and so therefore we can serve, then we've placed ourselves, from what I'm hearing you saying, in a position of a position to receive healing. I can speak to this on a personal level because... I was a soldier in combat. I experienced 20 years later a major traumatic event in the, on the streets of, of Sydney's drug capital of this world. And um, in, in both those cases, I, I realized that I actually grew up in my country in a state of, of trauma. And I look back at those events and I recognize that I would not be able to do the work that I'm doing if it was not for the point, the fact of re reframing that I can present and speak on some of these topics because I was there, but not anymore as a victim. Listen to this text, Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, I know the plan that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, Jeremiah is is writing this promise on behalf of God to the children of Israel. Where are they during that time, Lyle? Uh, they are during in captivity. Bab They're in Babylon. They, they are Babylonian captivity. Traumatic events have taken them out of their country. They are in a trauma state. But and they've God been through a brutal war where, you know, their nation and their city has been destroyed, their population has, you know, been raped and murdered and killed and, yeah, massive trauma. Yeah. 
So the question is here, can there be crafting moments here? Interesting, the Hebrew word translated as to give you a future. When you and I talk about future, we look straight ahead of us. But this word, akharef, uh, in, in the Hebrew text actually means that my future is found by looking back in mm. order to discover God's crafting for my future. David, we are out of time. I just That time went way too quickly this morning. I want to say thank you so much. It is so encouraging to hear from somebody who is a combat veteran and who has been able to overcome uh, PTSD, makes your testimony sound much more powerful and brings the words of Scripture to life in a new way and gives new new, new framework to it. Thank you for joining us this morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Question of the day time. Question of the day. All right. Why does Psalms 119 have divided sections with different names? What are the names about? It's a really good question to ask. So if you look at Psalms chapter 119, let me flick over in my Bible there very, very quickly. Um, you have eight different sections that Psalms 119 is divided up into. Now, this is unique in the Bible. You don't find this. Uh, anywhere else. Psalms 119, by the way, is the longest um, the longest chapter of the Bible. And let me see, how many verses is it? 176 verses long. And it's kind of like about, say, one, two, three, four, about four or five pages of just one chapter of the Bible. And so it uh, these chapters are um, all marked in sections of eight verses each. So it starts with Aleph, Beth, Daleth, He, War, Zayn, Cheth, Zod, sorry, Teth, Zod, Yod, um, Kaf, Lamed, Mem, Nun, Shamak, Ayin, etc. So it works its way through all of these different sections. And so somebody wants to know what, what is this all about? Basically, uh, very simply, they are letters of the alphabet. Oh. Letters of the alphabet in Hebrew? Yeah, in Hebrew. So A, B, C, D, you know, etc. Really? So is it is it actually A, B, C, D if I went through Psalms 119? Well, the Hebrew, the Hebrew alphabet isn't A, B, C, D. Well, yes. But it's the equivalent of. Wow. So it's a little bit like, you know, if we were to list, um, if we were to list, if we were to write this psalm and then we'd say this is verse A, this is verse B, this is verse C, this is verse D, it's a little bit like, you know, dividing our song up into verses and just listing each verses, verse A, verse B, verse C, rather than verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, etc. Okay. Or first verse, second verse, third verse. How many letters are there in the Hebrew alphabet? Do you know? No. I did a pastoral evangelism course, which <laughs> did not include Hebrew. Okay. So theology in course, course includes Hebrew, pastoral evangelism doesn't. Okay. <clears throat> um, so you'd have to ask a Hebrewist. I think there's like 22. It's a fairly simple. Well, there's um, 22. There's oh, there you 22 go. Well, sections of Psalms 119. I just counted them. <laughs> that'll be all of them then. Um, and it's a fairly simple alphabet. Oh. It started off in somewhat of a hieroglyphic form and moved to a more phonetic form, as did many of the ancient languages. Um, so there are elements of um, hieroglyphs that come through within the letters of the alphabet. Interestingly, when you look at the letters of the alphabet, you're going to find that um, you can find a reference to God mm. and different aspects of God 
in the letters of the alphabet. So this was uh, an alphabet that was uh, very much centered on God and very spiritual in and of itself. Okay. So. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, do you happen to know like when Psalms 119 was written in David's life? At what point? Not off the top of my head, I don't. I probably, uh, yeah. It, but what I do love about Psalms 119 is that it's all about the law of God. Yes. And do you know the answer to this one? I don't. Oh, no. okay. I thought you. Were, I thought you might have been asking me. Like, do you know this? Let me share with you. I'm like, please do share. Uh, no, I don't know the answer as to when in his life it was written, but it is probably one of the greatest psalms in the Bible. I think one of the greatest chapters in the Bible about the law of God and upholding the law of God and showing that the law of God 